someone I've recently come to know has in the past year or so received the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal saviour. I can judge how real an experience this has been for him because I have the privilege of listening to him addressing God in heartfelt worship. What's interesting is that this was someone who, together with his wife, had been associated for some 17 years prior to this with a well-known religious organisation, one which denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, at least in the generally accepted evangelical understanding of that term. What led up to the change? Well, in studying through John's Gospel, he came to chapter 20, to the point where Thomas stands before the resurrected Jesus, as he again appeared to the disciples in the upper room at Jerusalem, which was their hideout at this critical time. One week before, Thomas, as we know, had already doubted the reality of Jesus' resurrection. He demanded proof, physical evidence of it. Now here was Jesus graciously responding to his request, inviting Thomas to come forward and actually put his finger into the nail wounds in Jesus' hands. At this, all Thomas's doubts dissolve, and he addresses Jesus, my Lord and my God. The issue was settled for Thomas. And that's what settled it for my friend too. You see, he'd also been reading in the last chapter of the Bible where the Apostle John falls down before an angel, only for the angel to command him to get up, telling John that he too is a servant of God just like John. That makes for quite a contrast with Thomas's experience, wouldn't you agree? In the Bible book of Revelation, an angel refuses to receive worship. But in John chapter 20, Jesus does accept the worshipful acknowledgement of his divinity from Thomas. Thomas was not rebuked for addressing Jesus as God in breathless worship. But John was prevented from offering worship to a mere angel. This shows how wrong it is to believe in Jesus as being one and the same as the archangel Michael, or otherwise to consider him as the first created spirit being or angel. All angels are created beings, whereas Jesus Christ is the creator. The first chapter of Hebrews makes abundantly clear the difference between God's son Jesus and the angels. Really, there's no excuse for anyone still continuing to teach the error which had enslaved my friend for so long. To see that, Let's refer briefly to the dramatic contrast of Hebrews chapter 1. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. In making this all-important distinction between the angels of God and the Son of God, that's Jesus Christ, Notice how Jesus, the Son, is addressed by the Father as God. The Father calls the Son God. It's hopelessly naive to try to make any mileage out of the fact that the Bible doesn't contain the word Trinity. The only issue is, does the Bible identify the Son and the Holy Spirit as being equally God? And the answer is a resounding yes. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. I could wish to say more about this, but we need to keep on course with our look at the opening chapter of Hebrews, a chapter which shows the infinite gulf between Christ and angels, 
It's the gulf between created beings and the great creator himself. The Son of God is vastly superior to angels. That's the whole point of the first section of the letter to the Hebrews. And so now we come to the reason why the opening has stressed this point so conclusively. It comes at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. These words in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, form the first of the five major warnings around which this entire letter is structured. Last time, we were sketching the historical background to this letter. If you missed it, you can write in for the free booklet we're offering, which will give you access to that material. And if you're going to stay with us in this series, and I hope you do, then I really recommend getting the book as a study companion which you can refer to time and time again, especially when we're dealing with the one big idea in this series, the really mind-blowing disclosure that's to be found again and again in the letter to the Hebrews. But getting back to what we were saying, if you missed the previous session, basically what we said was that this letter was written to persuade early Jewish Christians to hold fast to the teaching of the apostles and so retain their place in the local units of Christian testimony which throughout the New Testament are referred to as churches of God. They'd been experiencing persecution and so were coming under extreme pressure to return to the old ways of Judaism and so go back to all the ceremonies and rituals of the law of Moses from which the Lord's teaching, see Acts chapter 15, for example, had set them free. In the giving of that law, the law of Moses, the Hebrews were reminded that God had spoken through angels. This seems to have been a common enough Jewish understanding, although it's really something that's only clarified for us when we get to the pages of the New Testament. But it's an essential point in the argument here that the word of the law was spoken through angels. And if anyone broke the law, they could expect punishment. In fact, a number of sins carried the death penalty, when at the mouth of two or three witnesses, the lawbreaker would be put to death by stoning. The writer to the Hebrews then reminds them that the word of their salvation had at the first been spoken to them by the Lord Jesus, God's Son and later his teaching had become the teaching of the apostles. But the key point was that it had first been spoken by the Son of God himself, and this was the teaching they were threatening to abandon and give up on. So this is where the build-up of the previous chapter assumes vital importance. Remember, that's where the vast superiority of God's Son over the created order of angelic beings was so thoroughly established. And so if Jesus, the Son, is superior to angels, and if failure to keep the law, which had been spoken through angels, had been a punishable offence, then they should be under no illusions whatsoever that it was far more serious to turn away from teaching which at first had been spoken by the Son of God himself. 
by as much as the sun is greater than the angels, by so much is the guilt of falling away from teaching spoken by the sun greater than the guilt of falling away from teaching spoken through angels, as the law had been. We're talking here about falling away from teaching, teaching which found its full expression in the early biblical churches of God. But I want you to be very clear about what we're not saying. We're not saying anyone can fall away from salvation. And neither does the Hebrews letter say this. Salvation is totally secure. It can't be made any more sure than it already is, because it doesn't depend on us, but only upon God and the once-for-all finished work of Christ. Not everyone agrees with that, I know. But the fact they disagree doesn't alter the truth of it being the Bible's clear teaching. I understand why some people have a different view, and Hebrews is one of the main Bible texts they use. No one would dispute that it does indeed describe the very real danger of falling away. But instead of that thought troubling us in relation to our eternal security and leaving us to puzzle over a contradiction with other parts of the Bible, like John 10 verse 28, I want to share with you exactly what it was that those early believers were in danger of falling away from. Some of those Hebrews who'd become Christians must have been under intense pressure from their Jewish families to renounce their professed, newfound faith in Jesus as the Messiah. As a result, some wanted out, wanted out of the churches of God in which Christians were then associated, as recorded in the New Testament. God's purpose for these Hebrews and the privileges associated with the little flock seemed to have lost its appeal for them. It seems they'd begun to think that living as a Christian compared unfavourably, after all, with living as a Jew like their fathers had done. The writer to the Hebrews is appealing to them not to turn back, not to drift away, not to come short of God's purpose in their lives of service among God's people. This is precisely because these first century Jewish believers were in danger of falling away from their place in New Testament churches of God by deciding to return to Judaism. To do that would bring about high-profile damage to the Christian testimony. This was serious, and so that's why we have the repeated severe warnings found in Hebrews. The warning here is not about rejecting salvation, far less losing it, but it's about neglecting it, by neglecting the obligations and responsibilities it brings with it which we should not fall away from. What this all points up for us is the fact that we've been saved for a purpose.